We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Let's turn our Bibles to Ezekiel, please. Ezekiel and 23 this time. Ezekiel 23. We'll just treat the first 21 verses here, or read them rather. We'll be preaching from Philippians, but I uh, left this reading until later in the service when the youngest among us were out. You'll see why. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. They committed harlotry in Egypt. They committed harlotry in their youth. Their breasts were embraced. Their virgin bosom was there pressed. Their names, Ohalah the elder, and Ohalaba her sister. They were mine. And they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Samaria is Ohalah, and Jerusalem is Ohalaba. Uh, representing the northern and southern kingdoms, obviously, this harlotry is spiritual harlotry, but a very uh, uh, picturesque way of expressing their idolatry and dis- unfaithfulness to the Lord. <clears throat> so we read about first the older sister, Ohalah, or Samaria first. And it says, Ohalah played the harlot even though she was mine, and she hasted, or sorry, and she lusted for her lovers, the neighboring Assyrians who were clothed in purple, captains and rulers, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. Thus she committed her harlotry with them, all of them choice men of Assyria, and with all for whom she lusted with all their idols, she defiled herself. Also, there's some aspect of protection here, of military power, and that sort of uh, humanistic-centered thinking. Verse 8, she has never given up her harlotry brought from Egypt, for in her youth they had lain with her, pressed her virgin bosom, and poured out their immorality upon her. Therefore I have delivered her into the hand of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians for whom she lusted. They uncovered her nakedness, took away her sons and daughters, and slew her with the sword. She became a byword among women, for they had executed judgment on her. Now, although her sister Oh. Ohiliba saw this, she became more corrupt in her lust than she, and in her harlotry more corrupt than her sister's harlotry. Talk about not learning from experience. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Verse 12, she lusted for the neighboring Assyrians, captains and rulers, clothed most gorgeously, horsemen riding on horses, and all of them desirable young men. Then I saw that she was defiled. Both took the same way, but she increased her harlotry. She looked at men portrayed on the wall, images of Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion, girded with belts around their waists, flowing turbans on their heads, all of them looking like captains in the manner of the Babylonians of Chaldea, the land of their nativity. As soon as her eyes saw them, she lusted for them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. Then the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love, and they defiled her with their immorality. So she was defiled by them and alienated herself from them. She revealed her harlotry and uncovered her nakedness. Then I alienated myself from her as I had alienated myself from her sister. 
Yet she multiplied her harlotry and calling to remembrance the days of her youth when she had played the harlot in the land of Egypt. For she lusted for her paramours, whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys and whose issue is like the issue of horses. Thus you called to remembrance the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians pressed your bosom because of your youthful breasts. Foolishness done by the nation of Israel, and thus God judged them. Well, we'll set that aside and turn our scriptures then to the book of Philippians, if you would, please. And we're in Philippians chapter 2. We've bounced a little bit in this section because we used uh, verses 5 through 11 at Christmas time and then went back and dealt with chapter 127 through 2-4. Last week we looked at chapter 2 and verse number 4, but just recall for a moment that God exalted his son after the humiliation of the cross, uh, that portion of the incarnation in which our Lord sacrificed himself. And God did that exaltation by uh, lifting him up and assigning him a name which was above every name, that at his name every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. And that's why God elevated him, those two reasons, knees to bow, tongues to confess Jesus as Lord, and all of this to the glory of God the Father. But also, Paul is going to say now, this should not just uh, issue forth in, pray, in, in, in praise to God and, and bowing to his lordship, but also that we would walk obediently before the Lord now. For if we claim in words that he is our Lord, and we have bowed our knee to him, so we say, we ought to live like it, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? I mean, if you're going to bow the knee to him and claim that he is your Lord, then act like it. That's what he's saying. Starting in verse 12, after every knee uh, bows and every tongue confess, he says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. That, I think, is the connection to what has come before, and I try to connect a little bit farther back as well in the chapter, because in, in 5 through 11 altogether, Paul is giving the prime example of what? What's the main point of the passage in 5 through 11? He's saying, let this... Mind, be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who he was exalted, he came low. That's an example of humility. <clears throat> you live in such a way that you look not out, not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others, that you consider others better than yourself. And Jesus is the prime example of that for us. That's why Paul wrote those verses in 5 through 11 in this context. So we should be humble like Jesus is humble. And he returns to the theme of Christian conduct in verse 12 by asking the believers to be obedient to what he has taught. Now we could read these two verses out of their context and they certainly teach good truth uh, and, and read them just in terms of general Christian obedience. And that's a good application. But probably in this context, he's specifically asking them about their obedience in terms of humility, looking out for the interests of other people, 
in the church. And remember, there was a little problem cooking in the church. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche, be of the same mind. Chapter 127, I want you to be of the same mind. Chapter 2, be of the same mind. Chapter 2, be of humble mind. There was a little fly in the ointment in the Philippian church. It wasn't a perfect church. It was a good church, but it wasn't a perfect place. There was something that at that time needed to be addressed. And so the, the Lord uses Paul to bring this to the attention of the church there that humble selflessness would solve the problems that are going on there. Now, in verse 12, as we look at some of the details, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. The Philippians were generally obedient to the word of the Lord in their lifestyle. They were obedient to the things that Paul taught them. And I think, first of all, this is remarkable because sometimes people don't receive what they're taught and they don't obey it. Um, And certainly when you're in a situation like in Philippi, it would be easy to say, look, Paul comes in, tells us about Christianity, we start obeying, we start getting persecuted, our leader gets thrown in jail, hang it up. I mean, uh, bad start, you know, bad first impression. Let's go on to how we used to be living. But they actually were, uh, although not perfect, they were a good church following the Lord's instruction, doing the, the work of the Lord in their community, being obedient to the things of God. Now, they lived obediently when Paul was present, but now that he was away, and he had been away for some time, the Philippian Christians were continuing the pattern of obedience to the apostolic teaching, even more so. Now, this brings up the notion of obedience in the absence of an overseer, if you will, somebody overseeing your life. And This immediately made me think of Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul tells servants to serve their masters not as men-pleasers, but as doing the work of the Lord from the heart as pleasing God. So he was telling them, look, don't just work when the eye in the sky is watching. Do your work faithfully. And for us, do our obedience to God faithfully, even when the eye in the sky is not watching. It's like, you know, the idea, when the cat's away, the mice will play, we've said sometimes, uh, use that phrase. That is, when Paul mentions obedience when he's present and then thinks about being absent, we could easily tend to think that people will, you know, they'll naturally be more circumspect when, when the apostle is in town, uh, when somebody's watching, you know, it's, it's, it's bad, if, bad if the kids disobey when their parents are out of the house. It's, it's, it's almost uh, worse, though, when they try to get away with it when, they're, when the parents are at the house. Like, they, they have an attitude, they think they can do that. No, they wouldn't do that as easily as they would with parents gone. <clears throat> and that's something we ought to think about. Obedience is something we tend to want to do when in the presence of other sound Christians or our pastor say, what if we truly, however, practiced our belief that God is omnipresent? Or even worse, God is present inside of us who are believers. He is always present in our lives by his indwelling. 
Think about obedience when no one else is around. That takes a kind of diligence and strong Christian character that is really what God is trying to develop in us. In the lives of the Philippians, they were diligent in their obedience when the pastor was not around or when the apostle was gone. They were you know, not on extra good behavior just because Santa Claus was coming to town. You know, they really wanted to live for the Lord. So, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says. <clears throat> so he, he, he exhorts them to continue the pattern that they have begun. Um, look at chapter 1, verse 27. It says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. You know, your Christianity is worthless if it's only for others to see. 99% of your life you live yourself, by yourself, or in your own head, you know, in isolation from what everybody else can see or know about what you're thinking or your attitudes or whatever, and that, that's where the rubber meets the real road. You, we have got to walk truly with the Lord. Otherwise, it's just mere hypocrisy. And that's what Paul is trying to remind them of. You've obeyed in my presence. Now you just keep on obeying God in my absence. <clears throat> now, needing somebody's presence to induce your good behavior is one thing. We've alluded to that just now, right? If, if, you know, if you say, well, it's, it's a lot easier for me to obey when somebody's watching. You need to get over that. That's an immature Christian attitude. But at least if you recognize that you have it, you can work on that. But what if you've moved past that immature mindset and are wondering not, you know, do I have to obey? But how can I obey if I don't have help? You know, maybe you have an honest question about that because you've been taught incorrectly. How, how could you be taught incorrectly? Well, if you come from some churches, you've been told, look, if you don't have the church, if you don't have the teaching priest, if you don't have the magisterium, of the, if you don't have the authority, you cannot understand the Bible. You have no hope of being obedient. You need us to tell you what to do. You may have felt maybe like the Philippians, inadequate once Paul left town. I mean, he didn't stay there very long. I mean, Paul, you didn't even finish Discipleship 101. You're in jail and you have to leave. What are we going to do? We don't know what to do. How do, we, how do we live for God? How can I obey if I don't have help? Some believers may feel they cannot get along in the Christian life unless they have a pastor or a priest or teacher or bishop or even an institutional church to guide them in the details. You know, that Bible is a pretty mysterious book. Better not touch that thing, you know, unless you're a specialist. <laughs> I agree, brother. Thank you. We have all been given the competency, if we're in Christ, to understand the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God who is our teacher, who has opened up the minds of our understanding so that we can understand the meaning and significance, the import and the implications of the text of Scripture. Don't you know, just have this, the idea that you can't understand the Bible or the ways of God and without you know, some kind of specialist to tell you what it says. 
indeed you can understand Scripture and obey it without an apostle being present. Now that's not at all to dispense with gifted pastors and teachers who can bring help to us in learning godliness, but it is to say that each of us has an individual responsibility to develop in holiness and the knowledge of the Holy One. You know, Sunday is not the only day for spiritual development. Every day, whether other Christians are around watching you or not, is a ripe time to grow in Jesus Christ. This, this idea of Paul being absent is connected to the doctrine of what we call the priesthood of the believer. Each Christian is privileged and responsible to maintain his or her personal relationship with the Lord. He has made us kings and or a kingdom of priests. You are built up a spiritual house like spiritual bricks. You are a spiritual priesthood before the Lord. That's 1 Peter 2, 4 through 9. Uh, no group of priests or other ministers is elevated above anyone else. There's not clergy and laity. There's not priests and hoi polloi. There's not hierarchies of, of, of popes and, and cardinals and bishops and deacons and pastors and then, you know, the rest of the great unwashed. If you're a Christian, you are equal to any other Christian. You have the ability to understand the word. You can obey in the absence of a, a minister of the gospel. The hierarchy of the Christian family is not a hierarchy. It's flat. It's flat. There's one head and there's a body, okay? So don't think of, you know, the kind of idea like there's God and the angels and, and you know, God and Jesus and the spirit and then the angels and then, you know, the Pope, and then, you know, like there's a chain of humanity that comes down to me, and I'm some serf down here that doesn't have a chance because I'm just, you know, a, a poor, uneducated fellow. No, that's not the, the view here that Paul has. You can live for God. You have, in fact, a responsibility to live for God, and you have access to live that way. When you think of the priesthood of the believer, you don't have to go through, you know, level one, level two, level three, to get up to God. You go through Christ directly. You pray to God directly. You ask God for help directly. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the priest. And he has, because of union with his people, you know, you're united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, in his life, in his ministry, United to him, you have that access through him directly to God. No other person, you don't have to worry if the pastor is absent, <coughs> excuse me, or if the, the apostle is gone or whatever. We have everything that we need for life and godliness. And so Paul goes on to say, you go ahead and keep doing that. Work, and here's, how, here's what he wants them to do. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, the notion of working out your own salvation, and this is where the title came from, by the way, in my notes. This is the Christian workout, okay? All right? Don't, don't worry about going to Planet Fitness and curves and all that sort of stuff. This is your workout right here, okay? The Christian workout. Now, this is something that's tripped people up because they, they see work and they see salvation. They say, oh, that's work salvation. Listen, you need, to, you need to learn how to read, okay? Don't do that. 
This text does not say that you earn your salvation by works. It's not a works-based salvation. It's just that these two words are together and a simplistic reading of the passage jumps to a bad conclusion. Here's the proper understanding of the verses, is that, or the verse, is that believers are to work out a salvation that they have already been given. Okay? It's very simple. Not they're going to work out to achieve salvation. The idea is you could, you could read it this way. Put your salvation into practice. That's what it means. Work out your salvation. Put it into practice. And this reminds us, among other things, of this key notion. Salvation is not only a past event in the life of the believer. I said it's not only that. It is that. When you're saved, you're justified on the one hand. Your legal standing before God is completely corrected and cleaned. You're given the righteousness of Christ, but you're also regenerated. You're given a new life out of the dead into new life. And that comes with a new nature and a new disposition and a new ability to live for God. That's past if you've come to faith in Christ. If you haven't, you need to believe in him right now. You need to turn away from your sin and come to that place of faith in Christ so that you can have your right standing before God be justified and be regenerated, have a new life. Because right now, if you don't know Christ, you're dead in your transgressions and sins. Secondly, though, after that past element of salvation, if you will, is the present element of salvation. And there's also a future one, by the way. What is that one? The future one is glorification. When we're finally sin is totally removed and we have a new body and we're with the Lord in the new kingdom, the kingdom, and then in the new heavens and the new earth. But in the middle, present salvation, if you will, is called sanctification. It's purification. It's, it's becoming more like Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, the emphasis on this is not as much, I think, as it should be as far as the conceptual notion, you've got to understand, you were saved, justified, regenerated, that's done and settled. Glorification, you don't have to worry about that. God will figure all the timing of that out and finish that for you. But the, the, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, your whole life is sanctification. That is the, the you know, phase two of salvation that you exist in for many years, perhaps, before you go into heaven. Present salvation is sanctification. And that's what he's saying. Work it out so that those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are expected to show that they, in fact, are. Now, he says, just a note here, he says, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You say, well, I thought the book of Philippians was about joy, you know, not about fear and trembling. Was he confused? No, he's not confused. In one and the same time, the Christian can have fear and trembling before God and joy. How? Because you realize that you have a salvation from the Lord that saves you from eternal sin and death and allows you to be with him. That's a joyful thing. Be joyful that God has saved you from your sin, but recognize this, that working out your Christian workout, your Christian putting into practice your faith is so important, so critical that we have to be reverently and, yes, fearfully and in a way trembling before God that we do it right. 
something is truly at stake, this is the problem with the kind of, you know, once and done salvation view where it's just, well, I got my ticket, you know, I got my fire insurance, I'm all done with that, I can go on and live, don't worry about it. That's not true Christian salvation. Um, and, you know, there's no fear and trembling in that. We have to recognize, I mean, the Apostle Paul said, I want to live for God and not be disqualified. I don't want to blow it, you know. I mean, you only have limited time, one life to live, and it's soon going to be over. And the Lord calls us to live because something truly is at stake, our holiness. We do not want to fall into sin and dishonor God. Um, We have that joy at the same time. But listen, there is a fear and trembling. You know, knowing that the fear or terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And that is not going to be like a little picnic. Okay? It's a real evaluation. We have full confidence when we go there that if we're in Christ, we're not going to be cast out. But, you know, you're going to get a grade, i.e. a reward, or maybe not much. And that will be embarrassing. And that will be dishonoring to the Lord. Now, so you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're putting to practice your faith. That's what that means. But here's where it all, what it also means. When, you know, when we say work out, what do, what do I do? How do I, <clears throat> how do I do that? Maybe this has puzzled you before. But after a careful you know, study of this portion, I think I can give you a very easy way of, of understanding it. You know, you might think, well, working out your salvation, that just means to be a good Christian. You know, it's kind of generic, not really defined. It's a little amorphous. But the concept is this, obedience. That's it. I mean, what did he say in verse 12? As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out. What he's saying is obedience is working out your salvation. The concept of obedience is parallel to the practicing of saving faith. Obedience and working out are explanatory of each other. In other words, to work out your salvation is simply to obey God in his word. Can I, is it any, can, I, can I make it any easier than that? Just obey God. You know, today people are, well, that's legalism. That's not legalism. Legalism is thinking that by my efforts or my law-keeping, I'm going to ingratiate myself to God. This idea is God has saved me from law-keeping and from sin and does not want me to go back and live anymore therein because in Romans chapter 6 it says I, you're not supposed to give your instrument, your body's instruments of unrighteousness, but instruments to God to serve him in righteousness. So this call is a call for obedience. It's not a legalistic call. It's that God's grace has obligations attached to it, and those obligations are not legal obligations. They're not meritorious in the sense of achieving merit. They're, they're altogether natural or normal for a new creature in Christ to do them and to want to do them. Okay, Yes, indeed, our brother's alluding to reasonable service. That is indeed the case. So working out your salvation means obeying God's word. Obedience is simply the working out of salvation. It boils down to that so it's easy to understand. What kind of obedience? Well, 
Obedience and humility. Obedience in the area of thinking of others instead of myself. Obedience in having a like mind and being of one accord and being in agreement on sound doctrine, not doing things out of selfish ambition. Working out my salvation is obedience in every area of Christian life. For instance, look at verse number um, 14. What does obedience look like? What does working out my salvation look like? Do all things without complaining and disputing. Oh boy, that is working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Watch the complaining tongue. I'm going to get ahead of myself. We'll leave that for next week. But uh, that's what it looks like to work out salvation. Now, look also very carefully at verse number uh, 12 at the end. Work out what salvation is it? What are the two words that modify that word salvation? You see that? Your own. Your own salvation is what needs to be worked out. Let me just emphasize to you, despite all of the communal and uh, communistic and socialistic ideas that are pummeling us today, salvation is not a group project. Okay? It is of individual responsibility. The community of believers certainly can help and does help, and it's not dispensable. We don't just throw the church away, but whether the church is strong or faithful or perfect or imperfect doesn't matter. You have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't change Whatever the church looks like in this day or age does not change one iota your responsibility to work out your own salvation. So in the midst of all that might be good about you know, the community, we have to remember there are also individuals in that community, and they must work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Why and how? Well, verse 13 says, For... It is God who, and this is neat, the Christian works out because God works in. Okay, The workout works because of the work in. God has done a work in us. So here we have an explanation as to the why and how of this obedient continuance in the working out of our salvation. Underlying our working out, is God's working in. That's why it's not earning salvation. It can't be. Because God already is working in us. He's done something to us. You know, I was just thinking when we were, when we were listening to that beautiful music and thinking about that crimson tide. Behold that crimson tide. When you come to a person who has been drawn, as being worked on by the Spirit of God, who's come to the end of themselves and they don't know what to do, what am I going to do with my sin? And they don't know that Jesus has solved their sin problem already and You come upon them and you have the privilege to share with them the gospel of Christ and you say, look, behold, the Lamb of God who spilled his blood and that tide still rolls today so that you can have eternal life and be washed whiter than snow. When when that person comes to that point, God has already been working in them and he will then continue to work in them to come to faith in Jesus Christ if they do and that work will be the work of salvation. That work is what's going on behind and underneath this working out of salvation. You know, our obedience then is not simply on our own power. We do use our own power. 
we, we, we energetically participate. We can't just say, you know, okay, I'm just going to sit here and God's going to maneuver me like a mannequin. No, we actively participate in this, but it's not simply on our own power. John 15, unless you are in the vine, you, you cannot survive. You know, you can't bear fruit unless you're connected to the vine of Christ. <clears throat> the life-giving work of Christ has to be in us and underneath us and all around us. <clears throat> so you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to do and to will, rather, and to do for his good pleasure. So these two verses touch on an aspect of theology that's in, that's in some people's minds in great tension. That is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God is in control of all things. That's a short definition of his sovereignty. To be sovereign means he rules over everything. And human responsibility is that we are commanded to choose holy things. <coughs> Sorry, and we have the opportunity and the ability to do that. Um, both God's sovereignty and human responsibility are simultaneously true. But often they are considered opposites of one another or in tension with one another. And here's why, because of philosophical concerns, not biblical concerns, but philosophical concerns like if God's sovereign over everything, then how can I have a free will? And you, you know, people hang on to this idea that I have to have a totally libertarianly free will, otherwise God's not fair, and he's making me do stuff that I don't want to do. That's philosophy, that's not theology. Okay? That's human philosophy. Putting these ideas together is far simpler than many people have made it out to be. The one, God's sovereignty, drives and underlies the other, human responsibility. In other words, this bold-faced statement in my, in my notes, you are responsible because the sovereign God told you so. That's it. That's it. You, God is sovereign, and he is so sovereign that he has assigned you a moral agency and responsibility, and you better, as our former pastor said, I'll do this in honor of him, you better get with it. You better get with it. You are responsible because the sovereign God made you that way. And if you don't think he's sovereign enough to do that, then you just have a too low view of God. He is sovereign enough to make you responsible to believe, to live, to obey him. After he saved you, he put you in a situation in which you have the desire and the ability to live for him. And not only you have the desire and the ability to live for him, you have the obligation to live for him. Now, if you don't have any ability, you say, I, I cannot overcome this sin in my life. You have no desire. I don't want to overcome that sin in my life. Then you need to go back to first base and figure out whether you're really saved or not, my friend. I can't tell you. You know, People go through their young part of their life and I don't have any victory over sin and I don't have a desire to serve God. Well, that's because the profession you made when you were five or six or seven years old was a nice profession at the time, but it wasn't real. It wasn't a genuine transformation. It was just doing what you thought you had to do. Uh, it's a sad thing. I mean, it's a sad, sad for me to have to say that, but 
Just because somebody, when they're six years old, professes to believe in Jesus doesn't mean they really do it. Look at the fruit. Do they have the desire to obey God? If there's no desire, you can't go back to that profession and say, well, a little so-and-so is okay because they made a profession of faith. That, that, that's all it was, was a profession of faith, not a possession of faith, unfortunately. So go back to first base. But if you do have that desire to live for God, if you do have, you found ability to overcome sin, then very good. God is working. So we are to obey, and we can obey because God is the one who through his Spirit works in us who believes. And his work is twofold. Look at verse 13. It is God who works in you both what? To will and to do. That's where I get the, the idea of desire and ability. He causes us to desire obedience. And oh, my friend, if you are a Christian here today, and you don't desire with all of your heart to obey God, then you've got something much more serious than COVID going on in your soul. You have got some serious problems. You must look at yourself and say, if God is not working in me to will, to desire, to volitionally choose his way, then I've got a big problem. And if he's not working in me to cause me to do his will, Not perfectly, my friends. I'm saying increasingly, directionally, you're moving and you're getting sanctified and you're walking with the Lord. Great, as you should be. But, you know, the two come together. Good intentions aren't good enough. In other words, to will, but not to do. God doesn't work in people to will, but not to do. He works in them both to will and to do. You see that connection? He gives you not only the intentions and desires, but also the ability to carry out those desires. And so we need to stop and ask ourselves, do we desire what God desires for us? Can we sense God's influence and control upon our innermost desires, what we want to choose and what we want to do and what we want to be? If, if not, then you know, obedience, real obedience cannot come about through mere external compulsion. That is... When the apostle is present, just because you obey then doesn't really mean anything. That external compulsion is not what we're talking about. We're talking about an internal. Think of it, God working inside of you, regardless of who's present outside, for you to be obedient to the Lord. God is working internally. He works on our wills and in our, on our behaviors because it pleases him to do so. And when we willingly do his will, that's really pleasing to God. The Bible said in verse 5, let this mind be in you. That's impossible unless God is working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. So if you're having trouble in your life, you ask God, God, help me, please. Come into my life. Transform me from the inside out. I want to be saved truly so, not just professingly so. Yes, Christianity presents an awfully high standard for us, an awfully high standard. But because God is working in us to will and to do, it's an achievable thing. It's not a far-off thing. He's working in us to make it happen so we don't have to despair. If you're saved, God has placed in you the desire to live a holy life. 
and he's given you the tools you need to actually accomplish it. So don't be like, you know, woe is me. I can't succeed in my Christian life. I, I cannot live for the Lord. It's too hard. It's too dangerous. Nope, 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 nope. God is working in you, and if God is truly working in you, what can stop you? What can, what, can, what can overcome you? God works desire and enablement in you. Now it's your turn to work them out. The Christians work out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us. Each one who is here, in whom you are working in, the desire and the enablement to live for God, that we would work that out, that we would submit to your work, that we would willingly embrace it, that we would, that we would energetically and enthusiastically embrace it so that our work, our lives would be pleasing in your sight. Help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because you work in us. What a blessing, Lord. Thank you for that portion of Scripture in Jesus' name. Amen.